Welcome to the Celebration Church Tri-Cities Podcast. We are so grateful that you have chosen to spend part of your day with us. We are praying that God speaks to you through this message from our pastor, Robert Russell. For more information about our church, visit cctri.org. Enjoy the message. Let's pray together. Lord, we do ask that this morning that your Holy Spirit would speak to each of us individually, especially in this area of brokenness. You know all the places in our lives where we've wandered off the path that you had planned, created our own brokenness, where we've suffered from the sinful actions of somebody else, or just the wounds that come with living in a fallen world. Lord, we ask that this morning you would use this time as a time of healing and restoration for people here. For any person here or watching online who's severely downtrodden, hopeless, that this would be a, a day of turning, a complete turn, where their expectation and hope in you would be greater than ever before. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I have been talking about the subject of brokenness for several weeks, and I've really tried to distinguish between what I think is a very healthy and good type of brokenness, and that is where you become humble and pliable and contrite before the Lord, the, the type of a broken and contrite spirit that is referred to in Psalm 51, where because of that brokenness, that level of surrender, then you are used as a vessel of God, sometimes without you even knowing it. But then I also talked about a lot of the brokenness that comes into our lives as a consequence of the difficulties and challenges of living in a sinful fallen world. And some people have gone through things that at times I've heard people's stories and it's just literally caused my mouth to drop open. I can't believe the things that they have walked through and lived through. Some of the harshness and the evil that some have encountered. And yet, God wants to restore and bring healing. We talked about this scripture in Isaiah 57 last week where it says that the Lord dwells in a high place, a high and holy place, but he also dwells with those who are lowly of spirit to revive them, to revive their heart. That even though he's the creator of all things and his position is one of authority over everything, he also is very close to those who are wounded and hurting. I believe it is the character and nature of God to always do some things. In other words, there are certain things he cannot do. God cannot choose not to love you. It's his nature to love you. He loves even those who are far away from him, wandering in evil. His love is always calling them back to himself. It's his nature. He's always going to love. I think it's also his nature that he's always desiring to heal the heart of those who are wounded and broken. To restore you, redeem you, give you hope for the future. Now, I said before, I don't think he wants to 
bring the place of brokenness and restore it to what you were before, but rather to make you something new. That through your seasons of brokenness, a part of you dies and what arises is Christ in you, that you're made new in him. So he does heal the woundedness, the brokenness, but he does something new and something fresh. We talked about examples of this in scripture last week. First was the woman who had come and literally anointed the feet of Jesus with her tears. And she had cried over him and kissed his feet. And the people around her, the Pharisees, saw her as a sinner woman and thought Jesus shouldn't have anything to do with her. But then Jesus said this, that even though her sins are many, that she had been forgiven much and therefore she loved much. And there is this very important thing about recognizing that God does not keep a record of, oh, your sins are too many or too great, but rather he wipes your slate completely clean. And those who realize how deep and complete is the forgiveness of God are often the people who love him and love others so greatly because they know what God has done to wash them clean. And so that was her case, that she was redeemed and restored. And see, she wasn't afraid to admit her brokenness. She stood before Christ in front of others weeping, acknowledging her deep, deep need for him. And then likewise, we talked about Mary Magdala, where the scripture says that Jesus was traveling around with the disciples and others, and with him were some women who had been cured or delivered from spirits and diseases, and among them was Mary, the one called Magdalene. And it says, out of her were seven demons that had been released or delivered from what had occupied her at one time. And of course, we talk about the fact that the demonic is very real. There's a lot of the church today that dismisses the idea of the demonic or tries to rationalize it away, but we live in a world in which Satan is the prince and the power of the air, that he, there is a kingdom of darkness. Look at all of the evil of the world, and you can see it. And there are spirits of evil that work to destroy lives. Satan is always seeking to destroy human life, and they are, in fact, very effective at it. And in Mary's case, she had seven different demons that had strongholds in her. And as I said, I've recognized, discerned many demons that have authority in people's lives, such as a lying spirit or a sexually perverse spirit or controlling spirit or something of that nature. That it's not uncommon for somebody who's walked away from the Lord to open themselves up by your own choices to demonic spirits having authority in you. Or sometimes they get authority in a person's life that come down through the generations where the sins of the fathers had been passed down. But there's a reality to it. And in Mary's case, she was so thankful for having been set free that she was working with the disciples. The scripture says there that the women were helping to support them. That she had become a part of the ministry that was taking place with Jesus and those that he was training who would be the founders of the church thereafter. But what to me is most profound about Mary Magdalene is the fact that God so honored her. You know, there's some people in scripture that are honored with very, very unique positions like Simon that we talked about who was able to carry the cross and slightly relieve the suffering of Christ. Well, the scripture records this in the book of John that after the point of the crucifixion that Jesus had been buried and then Mary went to the tomb and it says when she got there, she found that the stone had been removed. It had been rolled away. 
So she went running back to Simon Peter and the other disciples and told them that they had taken the body of the Lord out of the tomb. Now she assumed, I'm sure, that the Romans had done it or that the Pharisees had done this, but, but it was something that she had not yet fathomed. And so the disciples came back, they saw what had happened, they dispersed, went back to their homes, but Mary stood there outside the tomb and she was crying and then Jesus appeared and spoke to her. At first she didn't even recognize him, she thought he was the gardener or something like that, but when he spoke, she heard his voice and knew that it was him and responded and said, teacher or Rabboni. And she said, I have seen the risen Lord. She ran back and told the others that he's alive. I have seen him. And the point that I made last week in talking about brokenness in this scripture is that I really believe healing comes into our lives from the brokenness that we encounter when we have this personal encounter with the risen Lord. When you lay before him your pain, your anguish, your hurt, when you acknowledge your responsibility for the things in the past, that it's not always just somebody else's fault. When you take ownership of your sin and you repent of it, where you bring it out into the open and stop hiding behind it, all of those things are when you personally encounter the risen Lord. And it is the power of Christ, the risen Christ, that brings healing and wholeness in people's lives. There may always be some scars from the wounds of your past, but God has a way of healing them, redeeming them, restoring them for his glory and your good. I said last week that one of the things he does is take you when you find some measure of healing and use you as an agent of healing for others. So as you share with them what you've been through, the broken seasons of your life, that not only does he use you to help others, but in the process, what he also does is bring additional healing to you. And I've seen that quite clearly in people's lives, those who've been willing to share about their struggles, their difficulties, and how God has used that to help others, but also to bring additional healing to them. Now, I do want to continue to talk about brokenness this week and healing in a personal way. And I mentioned last week that Hetty was going to share with me. So, Hetty, if you'll come. And most of you know Hetty Britz, who's been here for a while, and Louie. And we're very thankful to have them as a part of our staff. And many of you may not know, however, that Hetty... Uh, is quite recognized as an expert in parenting, and I've seen that also in her understanding of relationships. In fact, her visa to come into the United States was one as a specialist recognized as an international expert in parenting. That's how she was able to get into the country. And she's appeared on Focus on the Family's radio program, on Family Life Today's radio program. Many of you may not realize that what a special lady she is, but I recognize the wisdom that she has. And so I wanted her to come and share about the things that she has seen with regard to brokenness in the counseling that she's done, how she's helped people find healing, and some of the important things that are necessary for us to find healing and wholeness. So Hetty, where would you start with the, the process of finding healing from brokenness? Uh Robert, I think the beginning point, and, 
and if I may pause and say, Happy Mother's Day, everybody. <laughs> Just have to say that. Um, want to say that. I think the starting point is not to assume that all people really want to be made well. And to make that distinction before you start a counseling journey. Because um, my assumption was always, of course, if you're hurting, you would like the pain to stop. But it is not always the case. And we see that in John uh, 5, when Jesus encounters this lame man at the pool of Bethesda. And Jesus asks him, do you want to be made well? Some translations say, do you want to be made whole? And it's not a rhetorical question because Jesus is really saying, do you want to stop having an excuse to not make any contribution to society? Do you want to stop being able to blame everybody else for not picking you up and putting you in the water? Do you want to stop being bitter? Do you want to stop telling whatever delicious story you tell everybody about your pain? Um, because there is something about having that excuse. Well, this is just the way it is, and this is what happened to me, and therefore, I can't do what you all are doing. Therefore, I can't be expected to be joyful. Therefore, I can't make a meaningful contribution. But some of the most beautiful contributions people have ever made came from brokenness. And people who refuse to be better in their brokenness and who refuse to believe that whatever it is that happened to them has canceled the meaningfulness that could be in their lives. And I thought this morning of somebody I met. It was just a couple of people who were invited to have a conversation about forgiveness. And this elderly man showed up, and I just thought to myself, this is the most beautiful person I've ever seen. But it wasn't his face. It was just, I couldn't stop looking at him because something was radiating from this man. And it was breathtakingly beautiful. I thought, I hope today somehow in this interview I can find out what makes him so incredibly, irresistibly beautiful. And what it was, was the, his son's death by suicide. That's what made him so beautiful. Because it carved into him this incredible compassion for broken people. It drew him into a, a kind of relationship with the Lord that I think few of us need and therefore have. Um, and you know, that is what, what um, Paul also said when he said, we, we have these treasures in pots of clay that break easily. And we don't understand that out of our brokenness should, should flow the beauty of Christ. So instead, we try and keep it all together. But back to this, this point of this person not wanting to give up his brokenness, Jesus maybe saw that. Because he chose the words, in this case, not your sins are forgiven or your faith is going to make you whole. He chose the word, stand up, pick up your mat and walk. So he's telling him three things that he's probably said a hundred times he can't do. And I think sometimes in our brokenness we say, well, I can't love again. Well, I can't hope again. Well, I can't get up today. Well, I can't trust anybody ever again. And I think Jesus wants to challenge that and say, do you want to be made whole? Because the implication of that question is, because if you want to, I am willing and I am able to heal. Now, we live in a time where 
People really want to blame others for the challenges, difficulties, hurts in their lives. And oftentimes we excuse our actions because we say, well, it's somebody else's fault. Somebody else caused this situation. But you're saying that there is this place of balance where yes, other people have wronged me perhaps, but I also have a responsibility in how I respond to that. Or maybe just life has been difficult and I have a responsibility in how I respond. And in this case, Jesus was saying, this man had to make a choice that he wanted something good. That God brings healing, but sometimes he does, oftentimes, require that we take responsibility. I do think there are too many people who they go through some season of brokenness in this world and their brokenness becomes their identity. And they almost use it as an excuse sometimes to manipulate other people. But God wants to do something different in the midst of that. Yes, definitely. I believe that God has given us, I mean, the word responsibility, you can break it up in two parts, response, ability. So we have an ability to respond not just in one predictable way, like being bitter or being angry or remaining broken. We have choices in how to respond to different kinds of brokenness. And we see that, people who stand up out of indescribable devastation. And when you ask them why, they said, well, I decided. And then comes some kind of a, an explanation. So there are decisions to be made. And the first and most important decision, I believe, is to, is to forgive. Because... And, and forgiveness is not saying what you did is okay. That, because if it were okay, Jesus wouldn't have to go to the cross for it. It is not okay. So when I say, I forgive you, I'm not dismissing what you have done. But what I'm saying is, I can't wait for you to do all the right things so that I can be free and so that I can heal. So I'm separating what you have done from my healing and I'm saying, I am going to heal, regardless of your behavior, regardless of what you have done, whether you're even ever going to admit to it. I'm not going to make my healing dependent on you. I'm going to go to God for my healing. So we have to cut that off, um, that, that tether to that person who has hurt us. And one of the most beautiful things for me in the Old Testament is in Leviticus where it talks about the two goats on the Day of Atonement. The one is the forgive goat and the other one is the forget goat. And the one was slaughtered and the other one was taken into the desert so that nobody could hear its bleeding anymore. But I hear people saying, I will forgive, but I'm never going to forget. But when you say, I'm never going to forget. Now, we don't need to forget the facts of what happened because there's therapy for that too. You're not supposed to block it out. That's not healthy. But you're supposed to be okay with the story dying. It shouldn't be the first thing you tell everybody who gets to know you. Oh, yeah, just so you know, this awful thing happened to me. Um, you, you shouldn't keep that bleeding goat. You should let it go into the desert and be silenced. Um, so yes, you have a responsibility, even if you're completely innocent, to let that, that guilt go, take the sin on its head and uh, be led out into the desert. And that's hard. I think um, for some people, when they think of forgiveness and the most difficult wounds that they've encountered, they see it as impossible. How could I ever forgive 
the man who walked out on me or the, the person who caused the death of my child or something like that. And in fact, I've known several people who've had children who were killed either in an automobile accident or murdered in a drive-by shooting, things like that. And how, how could you forgive that? Well, I do think there is a need to understand that my responsibility is my choice. That I choose, Lord, I'm going to forgive. I don't know how I can. I don't have the strength to. I don't have the capacity to, but I choose to forgive. Then what God does is meet us in that choice. That he gives us the strength, capacity to forgive what humanly is impossible to forgive. Now, most people here know that you've walked through that personally. Yes, and there, there is something I think for us to, to understand about forgiveness too is it is not a transaction between me and the person who hurt me. It really is not. It's me looking at Christ and saying all of that, I mean, I call it a designer death that he died. He died the kind of death that took care of every kind of pain and brokenness we could have. He was abandoned. He was betrayed. He was falsely accused. He was shamed. He was mocked. I mean, put any kind of brokenness you're experiencing now right next to the cross, and there will be some resonance there. So he had to go through all of these things. So when I'm not forgiving, I'm saying, Jesus, what you paid there for what was done to me is not quite enough. I'm going to need this person to bleed a little bit more, to top up your suffering to something that I can accept as fair payment. And that, and I, I mean this gently and with a lot of empathy, but that is an insult to the cross of Christ. That is saying, Jesus, you did not pay enough. So ultimately, when we forgive, we go to Christ and we say, I look at your suffering, and that's really what I want that person to go through, but my flesh doesn't get that in this situation. Jesus, I look at that suffering, and I say, thank you, that is enough. That's more than enough for what was done to me and for what I have done to others. I accept that. That's what forgiveness is, to accept the payment Jesus gave on behalf of every sinner, me included. And when you encounter someone who says, well, I can forgive others, but I can't forgive myself. How do you address that? I have a problem with the language. Because, again, forgiveness is something ultimately we give someone else. I don't believe we can give it to ourselves. What I hear when somebody says, I can't forgive myself, is I don't truly believe that God can forgive me. And I think that's... Let's say that again. That, I don't truly believe that God has forgiven me or can forgive me. That's what I hear when somebody says, I can't forgive myself. I can't, forg I can't receive God's forgiveness of me. And, and that's, a, that's another category of what I deal with in counseling is when, some, whether somebody is guilty or not, there is an opportunity in that pain for Satan to tell you lies. And they usually come in three categories. Lies about God lies about yourself, and lies about other people. And sometimes those lies are what we call guardian lies. They are so, they were planted so early on in your life and so regularly confirmed by things that happened again and again to you in your life that they are like a lie that stands at the door and that guards you from your healing, that keeps you from that freedom. Because Satan would like to, 
keep us broken. Because a broken person is busy with themselves. They can, they're so swallowed by their own pain. They can't be effective. They can't be a vibrant part of the body. Uh, uh, God can do anything, but it's hard to flow through a person who's so self-obsessed because they're so in so much pain. So, but Satan loves that because if he can cancel half the army, then he gets some territory. So he likes to take us out. So he puts this guardian lie there and maybe some of the guardian lies about God would be things like, he can't really forgive this particular thing or you've gone too far with God. Your last chance, you know, was last year and grace has now expired, it's over. Or uh, God doesn't hear you. You know, he hears other people, but he's never noticed you and he doesn't want to hear from you. Or you broke a promise to God way back and he can never forgive you. Or that scripture in Hebrews that says when you once knew and tasted the faith and you walked away from it, then you can't be saved. So you decide that at some point you did that. You committed the unforgivable sin. God's going to never take you back. So you convince yourself of something like that or Satan does. Or maybe about other people, things like, well, nobody can help me. And nobody wants to hear about it anyway. And if I talk about it, it's just going to make things so much worse. And people are not going to believe me. Or this is going to split the church if I talk about it. Or it's going to give my dad a heart attack if I confront him about this thing. So there's always this lie that's like a skull and crossbones that tells you, don't go to that issue. It's, you know, it's not worth it. It's going to overwhelm you. And those are the, the lies about ourselves also where it says, well, you... You know, you just need to suck it up, buttercup. You know, you, you are a Christian. You should have joy. You should just declare positive scripture over your life. You should just get up every morning and do a little jig and say, I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm very, very glad. And, you know, quote something and feel fine. Now, I think it's important to recognize that in the worst circumstances of our lives, I mean, whatever is the most traumatic thing that comes your way, the most difficult thing, the spirits of evil do not fight fair. They don't look at that and say, oh, I'm going to leave them alone. It's too hard for them. They look at that as an opportunity. And you're talking about the lies that come in these times of brokenness. So you can understand you're vulnerable, you're weak when you go through a season of brokenness and the spirits of evil will attack that with lies and try to get you to believe something that will keep you in bondage the rest of your days. So how do you work through the process of breaking free from that? I think that is where counseling very often is necessary because if you've heard and believed and reaffirmed that lie to yourself so many years over and over again, you often need somebody else to help you discern, wait a minute, that feels so true to you, but that can't be true. Um, when I was three years old, my mom dropped me off at a friend that she got to know when they were both pregnant with, with twins. Um, we were born normal and healthy, and this friend of hers lost her son at birth, and her daughter was severely handicapped. And she had asked my mom over and over again, just bring Hetty over for a little visit. I would love to, to see what Anne would be like if, if she were normal, and I just want a little baby to play with. And my mom prepared me for this. And when I was three years old, she felt that I was ready to go for a visit. And she explained that I'm going to meet this little girl whose legs don't work. And she loves music and we could sing. And my mom's a super compassionate person. Um, and she didn't want to keep saying no, no, no. So she prepared me. We arrived there. And at that moment, 
I decided I'm not ready, I don't wanna stay, and I became clingy and weepy. And my mother got overwhelmed by this situation because here's this woman who has waited for this opportunity for three years. Here's a screaming daughter, and she was on her way to a theater production, and she had all the tickets. Days before cell phones, <laughs> she can't text anybody, hey, I'm coming or I'm running late. So she just got panicked. And, but what I remembered as a three-year-old, and this is where Satan took an opportunity, when my mom and I were both so vulnerable, I just remember my mom's face being so shut down and her saying to this lady, Heidi, just pull her off of me. Hmm. And this lady pulled me off of my mom and I remember screaming on the floor, crying, weeping, and these kids, and they were German speaking, standing over me and mocking me, in, in, imitating my cries, going <laughs> and, and, and crying. And it was the most traumatic experience of my life. And that day I saw and knew that my mom didn't care about any of my feelings. And I believed it for 30 years. And I find that Satan often plants that lie in the area of our calling. I'm called to family ministry. But I believed for 30 years that moms and daughters can't get along and it's just a mess and it. You can just give it up for a bad job. You can't ever connect. Moms don't care about girls, girls don't care about their moms, it's just hopeless. Because everything my mom tried to reach out to me for 30 years, I filtered through that. But she doesn't care, because I believed it, firmly believed it, and I had evidence. Lots and lots of evidence, and I piled up more as the years went on. And I attended this workshop on therapy, and this person said, well, when the lies break, the pain leaves. And I thought, yeah, no, that's too easy, that's too simple, can't be true. And she said, well, just put your biggest pain on the table. Let's talk about it. And I said, well, the pain in the relationship with my mom. And she said, well, let's ask God what really happened that day. And I said, but I already told you what really happened that day. My mom had somebody else pull me off of her. She didn't care. She said, that's probably not really what happened. You were three years old. Let's ask Jesus what really happened. And I closed my eyes. And when I closed my eyes, I saw Jesus standing next to my mom in that situation with his arm around her shoulders and I was so angry, I opened my eyes and I said, I don't know what kind of counseling this is, but I'm out of here because if Jesus felt sorry for my mom in that situation, I don't want anything to do with this. And she said, wait, wait, wait. I think you just, just give him an opportunity to talk to you. And I saw him standing with my mom there and he said, Ida, this is gonna cost you 30 years with your daughter. And I, I saw a different thing on my mom's face. And I realized she's not mad at me. She doesn't, she's not hateful. She doesn't know what to do. So I got up from that and immediately, even though I had forgiven my mom so many times for hating me, I mean, which obviously didn't make any difference because she didn't hate me. I was forgiving something that never happened. Um, suddenly I had the sorrow for my mom because I could see something was wrong with that situation. And I drove to her house and it was, our relationship was of the kind where if I didn't give her a two weeks warning, she wasn't ready to see me. Like, it was toxic. And I arrived at her house and I said, Mom, I need to tell you something. Jesus just showed me that in 30 years, you never did anything intentionally to hurt me, but I need you to tell me what happened that day when you took me to Heidi's house. And she said, you were not even three. I can't believe you knew that. You understood what happened, that you even remembered. And she told me the backstory. And she said how she didn't know what to do in that situation because she wanted to be kind to everybody, but there was no solution. So yes, that's exactly how it happens. But God healed our relationship in that moment 
30 years of pain and bitterness and misunderstanding just evaporated. And my mom said, Hedy, I don't know how to explain this to you, but if I brought you tea, it was coffee that you wanted. If I, if I bought your brother's shorts and I bought, bought you a skirt, you wanted a short as well. And then when I brought them trousers and you not a skirt, then it was a skirt you wanted. There was not a thing I could do right. It was as though something was standing there twisting everything. And I said, yes, mom, it, it did. It was a guardian lie that Satan planted when I was three that twisted every single thing you did. Um, but that is why when we have this kind of a overreaction to everything and we have this this pain and this anger and this bitterness towards something or somebody that just doesn't want to budge and that, that grows and that makes us act like we're not even believers, then we need to be very suspicious of that pain and we need to bring it to the Lord and say, Lord, please let us tackle this because it, it shouldn't be there. I should be free um, because it is for freedom that you have set me free and you said in your word that there is no weapon formed against us that can prosper. So what is going on? Um, and then of course, that's when we need to face Satan that, that says it'll just get worse. You know, it's already this bad. Do you really want to confront your mom? But it wasn't a confrontation. It was a healing opportunity. Um, I said yesterday, how oh, I have this extreme fear of needles. But because I have, I have experienced freedom in, in areas where I didn't think God could heal, I didn't think I would ever have a relationship with my mom. I have an awesome relationship with my mom. She's my best friend. I also didn't think you could recover from rape. But here I am, and there's no residual pain there. So that, that made me make a decision that every year when my birthday comes up, I'm gonna think, where are, where are issues where I'm still stuck? And then I'm going to take them to the Lord and we're going to deal with them. And I have this, this issue with needles, big ones, so bad that I almost couldn't do our green card medical. Um, and my kids said at one point, mom, you're going to have to deal with this. Because they have to talk me down. They have to bar the door so I don't run. It's spectacular. And so, and embarrassing. And so... I heard about this vaccination trial where you, that lasts for a year and you have a minimum 10 blood draws and four shots. And that's if you don't get sick in a year. If you get sick, it's a lot more than that. So I thought, okay, 10 blood draws, four shots, nightmare, let's do this. Because I thought we have a responsibility. That means we can respond to things as we choose and we can also give things meaning. And I gave that vaccination trial journey, the meaning that maybe it contributes to saving lives. And number two, it's a passport to be able to fly to South Africa because they require it so that I can see my dad on his 80th in a couple of months. And I didn't know if there would be any other way to get to see him again. So I looked at that needle and said, you're my ticket to see my daddy. So we're going to become friends. And we did. After blood draw number three, I was able to look, and now I can look at four vials flowing out of my arm without my pulse going up. But I'm a freedom glutton, and I wish I could instill that freedom gluttony in people around me, to hate bondage, to hate fear, to hate sadness, to hate bitterness, and to say, that is not why Jesus died. He didn't die, so I can still live as though he didn't make a difference, because he did. He made a difference in every aspect of our lives, and he bought it so dearly that we should say, Jesus, what other freedom do you still have for me? What else can I put down? Which other issues would you like to heal? Because I can be healed. Um, in, in the, at the end of Isaiah 54, 
God says to Israel, who were devastated at the point, he said, um, I create the blacksmith that fires up his forge to make a weapon designed to kill. And I create the destroyer, but no weapon that can harm you has ever been forged. So what he's saying there is you're afraid of so many things, so many forms of brokenness, so many people who can break you. Maybe you're not even afraid of them. Maybe you're just afraid of Satan. Well, I made him too. So you have to get your categories right. There's weapons, then there's the people wielding the weapons, then there's the evil forces behind the weapons. But I am above all of this, and I tell you now that you're not going to be destroyed. And whatever brokenness we're dealing with, Satan wants to tell us, and this is how life as you know it ends. You'll never be happy again. But the word says otherwise. I mean, you talked about it a couple of times, how you believed for a long time that the best of life is behind you and it'll never be good again. Yeah. And it stole how many years of joy from you? Oh, at least two or three. Yeah. yeah. Now in this, I think you're talking about the fact that you do have to face mm. your fears, face your bondages, you can't hide from them, run from them. You can for years. You can try to play a game of, I won't ever go there, but the only way to find freedom is to go through it. Yeah. And like you were able to forgive someone who raped you by walking through it, the process of forgiveness, or even the needle example, you, instead of running from it, you said, okay, I'll tackle it. But I do believe a lot of us are afraid to go head on into the very thing that will bring healing. Yes, and I, I feel that the Psalms encourages us to do that properly. And when we look at how David did it, he sat in his sadness. And a part of me looks at some of his Psalms and thinks it, it, it reads like a pity party. But it's not what it is. It's somebody saying, I am going to strip down all of my facade. I'm going to lay bare my heart before God. I'm going to unzip my chest and I'm going to show everything that's in there. And in Psalm 38, there's just some of the words he says. He says, I feel pressed down, bent over, guilty, faint, crushed, agitated, abandoned, threatened, sorrowful, hated, anxious. I mean, those are a lot of heavy emotions, and he just lays it out in one psalm. And then when we look at the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah crafted those poems of mourning for his nation and for uh, all the brokenness that he saw when, when God judged Israel. And he, he didn't just gush it out. It's, it's written in an acrostic fashion. So the first line starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And then the second one, so the 22 lines match the 22 letters of the alphabet. So he sat there saying, in how many ways can I say this? How devastated I am, how much this hurts. He made poetry out of his pain. And we think, no, no, just snap out of it and say you're fine. But he says, no, no, no. And God says no by having this published in the Bible and having that lament there for us to, to look at. But then also that encouragement of his mercy being new every morning. Um, because even Jesus had to do this. He, he had to get Peter, James, and John away with him into Gethsemane. And these were his words. He said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. 
If we don't have, I think, at least a Peter, James, and John that we can say, listen, I'm scared to death right now. Or I'm so upset I can't sleep. Just say it as it is. Because if Jesus could do that, then, then we have permission to be that vulnerable. And it's important to be that vulnerable because, Robert, I think the alternative to, to expressing those emotions to God and to one another is to try and numb them. And Louis and I, on the way back um, from vacation this week, we listened to Brene Brown, and she said something about vulnerability, and she said, you, we can't selectively numb the emotions we don't want to feel. When we numb sadness and fear and anger, we also numb joy and love and contentment. And so it's either medicating our pain or it's walk, walking through it and working through it in community and also in relationship with God. Now, part of finding healing from brokenness, though, is dying to myself, my human desires. How does that dying process then yield life? Well, I said earlier that Jesus died a designer death because he had every kind of suffering uh, we would have, and we each have a designer death as well. So it's important for us to believe that the kind of pain that we each go through somehow is aimed at a part of our flesh that is particularly resistant to, to the transformation that we're all supposed to go through to be more like Christ. So whatever is not like Jesus in me has to be tortured to death. Somebody has to kill it. And it's usually in relationships where somebody offends me, accuses me, neglects me, um, treats me unfairly, whatever happens there that's painful, that's an opportunity to go, whew, that's a lot of pride, or whew, that's a lot of princess fantasy that you're something special, or whew, that's a lot of thin skin right there, or that's a lot of bitterness, I didn't know you were that bitter, or whew, that's a resistance to, um, to being corrected, didn't know you couldn't admit your faults, so to talk to ourselves through that through that brokenness and to work not just against it, because sometimes that's what we do. We just want to push it away, but to work with it, to say, what does this emotion want to tell me about the work that God may need to do in me? And then to submit to it, to let it do its work in us until some part of our flesh is moderate and we're delivered from the tyranny of always wanting our own way, because that is tyranny to always need your own way. Because that means your opportunities to be happy are severely limited. But when we get to be lower maintenance in life and we can be content even when things aren't exactly our way, wow, there's a lot of joy and freedom in that. Now that dying process that he orchestrates, what you call a designer death, is really he allows things to come into your life that will take away from you your selfishness, your sinful nature, so that Christ will become greater in you. And I think the one point that I would try to make out of this more than anything is that through brokenness, Christ does something new to make you like him. How have you seen that maybe in people you've counseled or in your own life? How has God done something new in you through brokenness? Well, I think um, it's something like she who has been forgiven much loves much that Jesus said about the woman at the well. Um, 
people who have gone through brokenness and who have decided to be vulnerable and to walk it out have much more compassion than those who are still holding it together, pretending that everything is okay. So there is a, there is a humanity and a gentleness and a love that, that comes out of people who deal with their brokenness. And there's glory to God because that man that I mentioned at the beginning, that is so beautiful. He is a glorious testament to what God can do in, in spite of excruciating pain. So we can honor him through our, through our brokenness. And when people determine to do that, to say, Lord, you say that all things work together for good for those who love you and who have been called according to your purpose, then I want to bring this thing where I can't see how this could possibly work together for my good. I want to bring it and ask that it won't only be for my good, but that it will also be for your glory. And that somehow this will stir hope in people. Because the Bible is very gritty. Um, and even in the situation where Jesus was in the garden, an angel came and comforted him. Because his friends, as you pointed out last night, weren't much use in, in that situation. But then it said, then an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And in his anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And I'm like, well, why is he still in anguish? An angel just encouraged him. But here it says, in his, in his anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. So I think sometimes when we bring our brokenness to the Lord, he doesn't necessarily remove it. Even if an angel ministers to us, it may not be gone. But there is an earnestness and there's a passion and there's something else, a deeper desire for him that is deposited in us in that pain. And we hear it when we talk to people who have been through excruciating things. I often say, I don't want to go through it again, but I, I don't wish it away either because something was deposited in my spiritual journey that I don't think I could have accessed without that. Um, I know that John Piper wrote about his cancer and he said such an important thing there. He said how to not waste his cancer. He, he learned to not think that the victory is in surviving it that cancer wins if he dies. So the battle is to stay alive. He said, that's not the battle. The battle is to not let whatever the brokenness is convince you that God doesn't love you anymore, that he is not on your side, or that it would, would draw your attention away from Christ. So whatever the brokenness is that we are battling, we win if we don't allow that brokenness to make us doubt God's heart for us. And when I see people do that, when I say, you know, I probably, I mean, they respond like Job. They say, yeah, I probably could curse God and die because I can't count the ways in which my life is going wrong right now. But I refuse to do that. I'm going to keep my eye on him. Um, that's, that's the beauty. I often say God can write his white, beautiful, bright name on a beautiful white background and we won't be able to see it. But when he writes his beautiful, bright name on a pitch black background, which is the brokenness of our lives, then we can all see, well, how can that person still have joy? How can that person still confess their faith in God? And it's a powerful testimony. That's a good imagery that God writes his name on us in our brokenness. Yeah. That's where he brings healing, where he creates his life in us. Well, thank you for coming and sharing and, um, the way we're going to close is the worship team is going to come back. 
and we're gonna just enter into a quiet time of worship for one song and I would encourage you during that time to make it a time of prayer where you would lay before the Lord any type of brokenness in your life, maybe any place where you're holding on to brokenness and unwilling to let it go, where you're not honest with yourself or with others, but that the Lord would use it as a time of healing for you personally. If I may close with a promise in Psalm 34, same Psalm you started today with, um, verse five, it says, they looked to him and were radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. My prayer is that in whatever brokenness you are, that you will take your eyes off of the people and move your expectation from whatever the world or life or others can give you and move your expectation to the Lord because that will make your face radiant and that will remove your shame. Thank you. We hope that you enjoyed this podcast and that it blessed you in some way. Don't forget to visit our website at cctri.org and make sure that you send us your prayer requests at office at cctri.org. We pray that the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him. 